Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey guys, this is a personal note from me. I was in a documentary that I think might be of interest to you all. It's called Cryptopia, Bitcoin, Blockchains, and the Future of the Internet, and it was finally released after the Cinema World Tour was canceled due to COVID-19. Join the award-winning filmmaker Torsten Hoffman, who made Bitcoin the end of money as we know it in 2014, as he dives deep into the crypto ecosystem and blockchain technology and discovers the good, the bad, and the ugly of this movement and the people behind it. Can we really trust them to build this trustless cyber utopia, or are their projects just as unfairly distributed and easily manipulated as our current financial systems and tech platforms? Cryptopia Film was filmed on four continents over two years and features many of the big brains and big egos of this controversial industry, including Andreas Antonopoulos, myself, Laura Shin, Wences Casares, Charlie Lee, Vitalik Buterin, Preeti Kassaretti, Dr. Robert Kahn, Roger Ver, Samson Moe, and many others. Be sure to check it out at www.cryptopiafilm.com. Again, that's www.cryptopiafilm.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Dan Moorhead, CEO of Pantera Capital. Welcome, Dan. Laura, thanks for having me back. Your April 30th newsletter was a sobering read. It went into detail about the economic impact of the coronavirus and um, talked about some of these big macroeconomic trends. You said that you thought it was clear that this re- recession wouldn't be V-shaped. And Kathy Wood of ARK Invest actually came on Unchained recently and said she thought it would be. So why do you think we won't see a V-shaped re- uh, recovery? So V-shaped re- recessions and recoveries happen when there's some kind of exogenous shock and everything returns to normal right after it. And we've seen that um, with either massive natural disasters or uh, September 11th, where everything stopped for a very short period of time, and then life as it resumed, you know, very quickly thereafter. And in this case, we have this physical and invisible barrier to commerce, which we're still trying to contain and and uh, fight, and that is going to probably persist for you know quite some time. And it prohibits people from going out and doing the usual uh, commerce that they would typically do. And so I can't, unfortunately, I don't see it bouncing quickly back. And then secondly, that virus has created essentially a psychological dimension to this. And so even if uh, a panel of experts said, you know, this thing is contained and gave everyone the thumbs up, go back out and resume your life as normal, I think it's going to take a while for people to get the confidence to want to, you know, get in a crowded airplane or go into a movie theater 
And then, you know, one of the silver linings of this is, you know, people may have learned new positive attributes to life and they'll realize, hey, maybe I really just don't need to travel for these business meetings and I I can do them on Zoom or, you know, maybe I I don't need to, you know, consume as much as I used to consume because actually it's nice just kind of hanging out with the kids and, you know. So there, I think it's going to be a very slow bounce back. And we even saw in the 2008-9 recession, it took three years to achieve the same level of absolute GDP as before the recession. And I think this one, unfortunately, is going to be somewhat similar. And so you mentioned also in the newsletter that you expect the recovery will resemble an L. So what does that look like in practice? Like what businesses do you think will be able to open or, you know, won't be affected as much? Like what will people be doing? Like how do you expect things to look kind of maybe a year or two out? Yeah. So one of the things we profiled in our letter is the dynamics of school and with so many with basically almost, I think there's one school in rural California that's open right now, but with the other 5,000 schools in the United States closed, all those kids are at home. And so parents, uh, you know, are responsible for their children. And um, according to the BLS, 40% of American families have a child under 18 at home. So, you know, almost half of American families have uh, a youngster at home. And then the surprising thing is even when both parents work, uh, even when uh, in married households, 64% both parents work so that there's no kind of flexibility there. And 93% of men with kids under 18 are in the workforce. And even 72% of women are in the workforce. So it doesn't, it basically it means everybody with a kid is in the workforce. And so it's going to be very difficult to restart the economy before you restart the schools and, you know, that's one of the impediments. There's, there's several like that. So I think with the psychological impacts and with these kind of practical impacts that it's hard for parents to get back to work if the schools and daycare uh, centers aren't open yet, it's going to mean a very slow recovery coming out of this. How do you think the government's response in terms of monetary and fiscal policy will affect the recovery? Yeah, so this is a global exam. Uh, every country's trying their own mix of uh, policies. And so you're seeing some countries, uh, like uh, before the show, we were chatting about Korea, which has done an amazing job containing the virus and essentially eliminating new cases. And then there's, you know, 200 other different policy mixes out there. Uh, I'm citizen of the U.S. and I work in the U.S., so I, I know the most about the U.S. And in the U.S., the policy mix is, is much more centered on fiscal stimulus. And that impacts my job as a cryptocurrency trader, because as you create, you know, enormous amounts of, of you know, new paper money, it uh, essentially devalues the, the uh, paper money relative to fixed asset things like gold or stocks or, or cryptocurrency. And the scale really is on such an uh, extent that I, I don't have adjectives for it. The deficit in the United States is about 12.5% of GDP of fiscal stimulus on top of what was already a very large structural deficit. And so firms like JP Morgan are forecasting the deficit for this year will be 19.5%. And, you know, everyone out there, you know, trying to throw adjectives like unprecedented or whatever. It's really hard to get your head around that. To my mind, the easiest way to get a sense of how staggering it is, 
is that deficit is larger than the widest deficits during the Great Depression. And it's even larger than the average deficits the U.S. incurred fighting World War II. So, you know, these really staggering sized deficits. You lived and traded in Japan in the early 1990s as they entered what became their lost decade. And you wrote in your newsletter, I've watched with professional fascination as the Bank of Japan invented QE, ZIRP, or ZIRP, and buying equities with printed money. Lots of interesting stories and a few current thoughts, but TLDR, not a pretty picture for their currency. And then you wrote, hashtag buy Bitcoin. Can you elaborate on on what you saw there and what you think that means for today? Yeah, I think it's a great example. Um, they have led the rest of the developed world into what is now uh, ubiquitous, quantitative easing, essentially printing now on unlimited amounts of, of, of money. The zero interest rate policy that they enacted uh, in 1990, uh, and then they went on to start trying to prop up their equity market. They had a price-keeping operation, that's what they called it, uh, I still actually don't know what the policy goal of fixing equity prices is supposed to do uh, for the whole citizenry. Obviously, it's great for shareholders. But if the U.S. you know, follows down that path or other developed countries follow down that path, I really think it uh, you know, has lots of policy implications. And you could you know, talk about the fact that in the United States, there's three Americans that have more wealth than half of Americans combined. So, um, you know, the distribution of wealth is very inequitable. And so you, there's all kinds of very interesting policy questions about whether it's a correct objective to set equity prices as a uh, policy objective. But if you do do that, the impact it has on my world as a currency trader is it takes trillions of dollars to do that. And that has already had its effect. We, we've seen that with the U.S. stock market is now up on where it was May 31st of last year. So this massive uh, inflow of money is supporting equities, but it also has to support other fixed quantity things like gold or Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And what we saw in the, in the Japan case in the, in the currency specifically is as they keep printing more and more uh, Japanese yen, the value of each one of those yen relative to other things like other country's currencies has to def, uh, you know, debase or devalue. And the um, graph that we put in our investor letter shows the price of the Japanese yen adjusted for inflation and weighted against all of their trading partners. So it's kind of a single price of the yen going down from 140 units on an index down to about 75. And so you know, they lost almost 50% of the value of their currency over that time period. Wow. So obviously, I can see how, you know, that would fuel your buy Bitcoin hashtag. But one other thing I saw in your March newsletter is um, you at that time said that you thought tokens would outperform venture. And I was curious, why did you think that? And then how has that thesis borne out? Sure. So when we wrote our investor letter in uh, like kind of the week after the, the crisis started in mid-March, we made a short-term forecast that tokens would outperform venture, and that has has actually happened, and we think it'll probably continue for the next few months. And, and the reason being, tokens have the unique characteristic amongst all software protocols in having a real-time price feed. That's sometimes a really good thing, sometimes a bad thing, that everyone focuses on the price of Bitcoin or the price of ETH 
or the price of XRP when, you know, they really are multi-decade projects and, and maybe we shouldn't obsess about the short-term movements, but we do have that. And so they reset very quickly. On March 12th, cryptocurrencies went down, you know, almost 50%. And then, uh, so you get an instantaneous price reset. Whereas Venture is, is um, <clears throat> kind of asynchronous that you have a whole bunch of sellers of Venture, the developers or entrepreneurs or building companies who don't reset in their valuations as quickly as the buyers. And so when you have a crisis like this, you essentially get a period where very few transactions actually happen. And it's, it's, it's very analogous to the um, residential housing market that when you have a bubble in housing and the bubble pops and the buyers bids all go, you know, say down 20 or 30%, you basically have a period of several months while the sellers are kind of getting their heads around the new lower prices. And so you have a very low transaction amount for a couple of months and then everything resets and gets going. And we think that's basically happening in venture that um, <clears throat> with the financial markets in turmoil, prices will probably reset much lower, uh, but it's going to take two or three or four months for that all to kind of work its way through the system. In a moment, we'll further dive into crypto during the time of coronavirus. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Dan Moorhead. There was a time when it was thought that crypto assets were an uncorrelated asset, but obviously, as we saw on March 12th, now dubbed Black Thursday, they seemed no that seemed no longer to be the case. So do you think that since then crypto has been uncorrelated or has it been correlated? And why do you think that at least on that day it was correlated? Laura, that's a that's a super important question. And one of our main um, arguments for advocating crypto as a new and important asset class is that it does have essentially zero, and this is the important adjective, long-term correlation with all other asset classes. Historical correlation between uh, Bitcoin and equities, gold, um, commodities, uh, bonds is 0.08. So, you know, very, very close to zero. The important caveat, though, is in times of very stressed risk aversion uh, markets, Bitcoin does become correlated. And there have been five uh, examples of this since Bitcoin was first traded, where the S&Ps had a very large uh, down move, and Bitcoin has been correlated for a short period of time. And that's the key here. Uh, according to our analysis, it's averaged <clears throat> 31 days where it's been highly correlated. And then over a period of 70 days, uh, that correlation kind of tapers back down to essentially zero. And then after that, they start to trade independently. And that is, uh, that was our view in our March investor letter. And that's, that's still our view that <clears throat> Bitcoin was highly correlated for about a month. And that's true. Its correlation was about 0.8 over the last, over the first 30 days after March 12th, but that that correlation will slowly dissipate. And it's supposed to happen over 71 days on average. And that's actually 
happening right now. We're almost at that period. And so we can see a, a regime going forward where Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are not very well correlated with the S&P. And you're actually seeing that now. Bitcoin is up 23% year to date and uh, the equity markets are still way down and all the other asset classes like oil are you know, getting crushed. So Bitcoin is decoupling from the S&P. And then we think over the next couple of years, you could see an environment where Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies go up a ton and you know, maybe equities go down over the next couple of years. And during uh, your answer just now, you were occasionally singling out Bitcoin. And I wondered um, if Bitcoin in particular has behaved differently, even from the broader crypto market. And, you know, I was curious to know what your view was on that and how the rest of the crypto market would perform. Yeah, that as well is a very important distinction. Bitcoin has typically performed better in crises than the rest of the market. And the measure of Bitcoin's market share uh, called Bitcoin dominance has on average gone up 7.8 percentage points in a crisis. So um, in those five uh, big S&P crises before, uh, Bitcoin dominance has gone up. And that typically has lasted an average of four months. And then it kind of uh, dissipates again. And we believe that's going to be a smaller impact this time that uh, for a handful of reasons, but we think Bitcoin will go up and, and it started this crisis at about 62.5% uh, Bitcoin dominance and it's now around 68%. So it has gone up 5.5%. Uh, and it'll pro it's been about two months since the crisis really started. Uh, it might persist for another month or two. Uh, and then at that point, we think the essentially non-Bitcoin tokens will start regaining market share. So in our own trading, we did overweight Bitcoin uh, in the middle of March, and uh, we still hold that position. But we are certainly very conscious that at some point in the next month or two, we're going to reverse that. And um, there's an even, there's a more short term event that everybody's looking forward to, which is the halving next week. What do you expect to happen, both kind of like in the, you know, immediately after the halving, as well as further into the future? Yeah, it's a fun one. I, you know, everyone gets super excited about it. And then the halving in 2012 and 16, everybody got, got really excited. And, and in those cases, they were right. It caused a huge uh, change in the markets. And so you can have people that would say, theoretically, if efficient markets theory holds, and we all know this is going to happen. And we've known this halving is going to happen for 10 years because Bitcoin's uh, money supply is fixed and known. It should all be priced into the market. But there's this great line attributed to Warren Buffett that goes against that dogma saying that the markets are almost always efficient, but the difference between almost and always is worth $80 billion to me. And that's my view is that <laughs> some things that we all know are going to happen still do actually impact the markets. And in this case, I think it's really easy to visualize how this would happen. All the money supply of Bitcoin is issued to the miners who provide the security and transaction processing. And they sell all their Bitcoins to buy faster chips and more electricity and more uh, rack space, right? So they're in this constant arms race to keep growing. And, and, and so every Bitcoin that comes in, they sell. If that number, which is the supply of Bitcoins, gets cut in half and demand is constant, if we go back to our Econ 101, it's going to drive the price up. And that has actually happened. And, you know, the past doesn't guarantee the future. So, um, you know, we only have two data points. So with that caveat, uh, the past two 
halvings have had a really large impact on the price. Uh, but it's diminishing, and I, I think it will diminish again this time. And we, we published some interesting stats in our investor letter where in the previous two halvings, the market for Bitcoin bottomed on average 459 days before the halving, so a year and a, a bit before the halving. And then it kind of ground up into the halving. Uh, and that's done it this time. The market bottomed about a year and a bit ago, 514 days exactly ago. And the market's up 168% since uh, it bottomed as we come into this halving. And that's roughly in line with the past halvings. The interesting bit, though, is what happens after the halving. And in the previous two, the markets exploded to the upside after the halving. And we put a new type of analysis where we're analyzing the stock-to-flow ratio in Bitcoin in, in our letter. And I think it actually explains a lot of what happened in the past and might give us some insight what's going to happen in the future. And the uh, all the data is in our letter, but just to, the, the summary is, in the first halving, we were going from 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes to 25. And at the time, we didn't really have that many Bitcoins outstanding. So it was a really big impact. Uh, there were only 10 million Bitcoins outstanding at the time. And we were cutting the supply over the next 446 days, which is the typical period of the rally, by over 1.6 million Bitcoins. So that was over 15% of the outstanding supply was being, you know, reduced or cut in the halving. So the market exploded up. In the second halving in 2016, obviously we're only cutting half as many out because that's the whole point of a halving. So we're only cutting out 12 and a half bitcoins every 10 minutes. Uh, and at the time we had 15 million bitcoins outstanding. So there's 50% more bitcoins and 50% less being cut. So it impacted the outstanding supply by only 5%. So it was one third of the the impact, and and then this having, of course, is half as big as the last one. And now we have eighteen million bitcoins, so there's even more outstanding bitcoins. And it, so it'll only be a two point two percent impact on the supply of uh, bitcoins. And those ratios actually match the ratios in the rallies. The first rally was three point two times bigger. Then the second one. And so if all this holds, and again, you know, obviously there's huge caveats on whether the past does predict the future, but if those relationships hold, the rally here would be about 40% as big as the previous one in 2016. And that would imply Bitcoin going to $115,000 per Bitcoin. And I recognize that sounds absolutely ludicrous to most people today, but our first price estimate of 5,000 sounded ludicrous when we were at 65. And I think it's all I'm saying is it's way more than a 50 50 chance that Bitcoin goes up over the next year and a half. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is a huge number. And yet at the same time, the graph, when you look at this kind of stock to flow ratio and then also map it onto the history, um, it is true that, that it does seem to fit, uh, at least, you know, broadly, roughly. Um, so who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask about was you also did mention in your newsletter that venture investing in crypto during the crisis or, well, I just want to ask you, how has that been affected during this crisis? So it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. Um, we're only, you know, seven weeks into this. 
Uh, I would think the number of transactions go down very steeply. So there's a lot of investors that are pulling back and not, you know, wanting to invest until, you know, essentially all the dust settles and they see where it is. Um, we're actually much more kind of constructive or engaged. And so we've done four transactions since the crisis began, a couple directly with uh, companies. We're going to announce one tomorrow. Uh, and then we are also adding two positions we already have in the secondary market from, you know, early investors that need some liquidity for, you know, other reasons. And we have featured a table in our investor letter from Cambridge Associates, one of the largest um, advisors in the space, in the uh, endowment space, that confirms the intuition that venture investing after a crisis is actually the very best time. And it goes through the 10 years of venture prior to the last crisis, so 1999 to 2008, those had an average IRR of 6.28. And then the years directly after the crisis, the ones that could buy assets at much cheaper prices, those are the ones that had very high teens and sometimes 20 plus IRRs. And the average return of the post-crisis vintages was 18.21. And I think that's going to repeat itself within venture generally, but then, you know, we're obviously only interested in the blockchain sector. And so we're very excited about investing in venture now because we think prices will be cheaper and returns will be higher over the next four or five years. And last quick question before we go, stable coins have seen a lot of growth during this crisis, but how would you say that business model will do with interest rates at or near zero? Yeah. So Stable coins really have finally come into their own. And, um, you know, we follow our portfolio company circles, stablecoin USDC, and that increased 60% after the crisis began. So the outstanding issuance of USDC has exploded uh, because people want to use it either to store their wealth or to have a very instantaneous transactional currency. And I think they're usage will really grow throughout this because if you if you think back to the last crisis you know would you rather have your savings in the Lehman Brothers of 2020 or a token you control which is fully backed by US treasuries and i think more and more people will realize that a stablecoin backed by US treasuries is going to be way more uh safe than you know any kind of levered you know finance firm the business model such as it is for uh, things like Libra or USDC uh, is to retain essentially the float off of the government debt securities that they own. And I'm a firm believer that the zero interest rate policy is going to be with us for, you know, <laughs> at least a long time, if not forever. And so it will reduce the income basically of these stablecoin projects. That doesn't make them any, you know, less likely to happen. They're, they're certainly going to happen because they have a ton of utility, but the companies that sponsor these stable coin projects will probably earn less revenue. Mm. All right. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. And um, I have to say, after listening to you, I definitely would say this probably does sound bullish for Bitcoin. Um, but it sounds like also we'll have to wait at least, I don't know, what do you think? 18 months before we'll know? Oh, I, I really, you know, I've, I've been fascinated by this for uh, nine years. I, this is the time, right? Over the next two years, I think we're really going to see blockchain prove itself. Uh, so for all of us that have been in a community like you and um, for all these years, I, I'm really excited. We're really going to see this stuff uh, play out over the next couple of years. <laughs> all right, great. Well, I hope the listeners stick around for the ride. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you on Unconfirmed. Laura, thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Time for your favorite crypto news recap. Ahead of the Bitcoin halving, there was a lot of Bitcoin news. First up, hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones buys Bitcoin futures. Billionaire hedge fund investor Paul Tudor Jones published a macro outlook newsletter about the coronavirus and what he calls the Great Monetary Inflation, GMI, and he defines it as, quote, an unprecedented expansion of every form of money, unlike anything the developed world has ever seen. In the newsletter, he writes about how, while wondering which assets would become more prominent due to the Great Monetary Inflation, he thought of Bitcoin, quote, It falls into the category of a store of value, and it has the added bonus of being semi-transactional in nature. The average Bitcoin transaction takes around 60 minutes to complete, which makes it near money. It must compete with other stores of value such as financial assets, gold, and fiat currency, and less liquid ones such as art, precious stones, and land. The question facing every investor is, what will be the winner in 10 years' time? At the end of the day, the best profit-maximizing strategy is to own the fastest horse. Just own the best performer and not get wed to an intellectual side that might leave you weeping in the performance dust because you thought you were smarter than the market. If I am forced to forecast, my bet is it will be Bitcoin. There you have it. If you are looking for a bullish sign going into the halving, this isn't a bad one. And for all you Bitcoin nerds out there, in his newsletter... He even quoted Satoshi Nakamoto. Next headline, Bitcoin volume on Square's cash app explodes in Q1 2020. Someone, in fact, a lot of people, a lot of whom I'm betting aren't billionaires, got the memo before Paul Tudor Jones. The block reports that Square saw $306 million in Bitcoin revenue in the first quarter of 2020, earning $7 million in gross profit. That's a near doubling of the gross profit from Q4 2019 and an increase of 367% from a year prior. During an investor call in March, CFO Amrita Ahuja said, quote, Adoption and engagement of fractional equity investing in Bitcoin has accelerated in recent weeks given recent market interest and volatility. Next headline, How Hash Rate Derivatives Could Help Miners CoinMetrics introduced what it is calling the CoinMetrics Bitcoin Hash Rate Index, CMBI, and another metric called Observed Work. These stats could serve, quote, as the foundational pieces of financial products that can provide markets with the required tools to effectively and efficiently trade and or hedge Bitcoin's hash rate. These tools could be important in helping Bitcoin miners hedge their risk. The hash rate index is designed keeping in mind that first, in the short term, the hash rate can be gamed. Second, that hash rate tends to follow an oscillating pattern. So the outcome of a trade could depend on whether it is settled at the top or bottom of an oscillation. And third, that the rate at which the contract closed might not account for what happened over a long, longer time period, such as whether the hash rate was 20% higher during the term of a contract as opposed to when it opened or closed. For observed work, they use two figures, the 48-hour implied hash rate level multiplied by the time taken to find the most recent block. From these, 
from these two tools, CoinMetrics proposes an observed work futures contract that it says would be predictable, measure the performance throughout the contract, not just at the open and close, and not be easily manipulable. After making their case, the CoinMetrics team invites financial service providers who might want to build financial products on these tools to contact them. We will see if anyone bites. Next headline, BitMEX BitMEX research on Ethereum 2.0, exceptionally complicated. So you guys, I tried reading this detailed report on Ethereum 2.0 after I interviewed CZ and also conducted my next Unchained interview, both all in the same morning. And what I can tell you is that you need a fresh and focused mind to be able to absorb the highly complex beast that is Ethereum 2.0. And if your brain is already fried, it's not really going to work. So I couldn't do it despite BitMEX's thorough report. But their conclusion is a good TLDR. First, they say that the ETH price could go up if a lot of ETH gets locked in the beacon chain, which is, this is phase zero, which is probably going to be launching in July. Then they say, quote, however, the real question is whether Ethereum 2.0 will drive long-term value. And for that, supply does not only need to be restricted, there needs to be sustainable demand. So I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, I don't care about the price. I just want to know if Ethereum 2.0 will succeed. And to that question, BitMEX Research says, quote, In writing this report, there is one thing that stands out to us above everything else. Ethereum 2.0 is exceptionally complicated. With so many committees, shards, and voting types, it seems reasonably likely that something will go wrong and that there will be significant further delays. However, despite all these potential issues, Ethereum 2.0 is still probably worth a try. If this does succeed, the potential rewards are considerable. Next headline, Libra gets its first chief executive. Stuart Levy has been named the first chief executive officer of the Libra Foundation. Levy is currently the chief legal officer at HSBC and was a U.S. undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence under President George W. Bush. He told the Financial Times, quote, One of the things I intend to do when I started the Libra Association is to review in detail the current plans that are in place for financial crime, compliance, and frankly, all of the other critical controls. So if you were wondering the direction that Libra was going to go in, that's your answer. The FT says, quote, Mr. Levy is best known for tough enforcement of Bush-era financial sanctions on Iran, which cut off the country's financial system and forced it to begin engaging with the West on its nuclear program. He was viewed as so effective that the Obama administration asked him to stay on. Next headline, ICE awards former backed CEO $9 million windfall. In December, as Kelly Loeffler, the former CEO of BACT, left the company to serve as a U.S. senator from Georgia, the parent company, Intercontinental Exchange, awarded her $9 million in stock and other awards. However, although these had been previously granted, Loeffler had not stayed at ICE long enough to earn them. The New York Times reports, quote, Intercontinental Exchange altered the terms of the awards, allowing her to keep them. The article also quotes Brian T. Foley, the managing director of Brian Foley & Company, which is an executive compensation consulting firm in White Plains, New York, who said, quote, it looks, feels, and has the sweet aroma of a pure windfall. 
Leffler's husband, Jeffrey Sprecher, is the chief executive of ICE. Time for fun bits. Then Coindesk 50 launches. Crypto publication Coindesk has published, at least as of the time of this recording, the first 10 in a list of the 50 most innovative, consequential, and viable projects in crypto. At the top of the list is Binance, which that makes sense to me. I could see Binance someday being the crypto Google, which is funny because that was something that back when Ethereum started was one of the competing visions for Ethereum. Ethereum itself came in at number two on the Coindesk list. Coindesk called Ethereum's central role in the ICO craze, the DeFi trend, and in the growth of stablecoins as the reasons why it made the list. The Coindesk 50 also ranks traditional financial services firm Fidelity at number three. I would say it's an interesting list. I don't agree with every choice, but you should definitely check out the full thing. And Coindesk will be revealing all 50 by the time its consensus distributed conference gets started next week. And by the way, I will also be co-hosting a segment with Michael Casey on Monday. So you should, should definitely check that out. It's at, <laughs> I think it's at 11 or 1130 a.m. Eastern. Um, all right. Well, thanks for tuning in to learn more about Dan and Patera Capital. Be sure to check the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Want to get more people into crypto? Spread the word about Unconfirmed. The easiest way to do that is to rate and review us on your preferred podcast player. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.